Well, good evening. Welcome to Good Hope Church. I'm Pastor Mike, and I am glad you are here for our uh, special week with Drew Berryessa. Fantastic to have Drew back here from six years ago, visiting Cloquet, having some good times, and now back in Cloquet. And so, very thrilled. Uh, if you haven't heard Drew or know Drew, um, you know, I, I consider him to be one of the best voices on this issue uh, in the country dealing with, uh, you know, just all the issues of sexuality and the LGBTQ uh, questions and, you know, all of that. It's something that for me, like, I, I'm not exactly sure what to do with it, you know. So you end up all of a sudden being thrust into situations as a pastor and you're supposed to be able to have wisdom and it's like, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure what to do with this. And uh, so in those situations, it's great to be able to have resources where you have people who have greater expertise and greater understanding and have just dealt with things, uh, have so much more experience. And so I am thrilled to have... Drew here, and uh, that's really, oh, I should maybe explain a little bit what the evening is going to be like. Uh, so Drew is going to present, and he's going to talk about, you know, the, the interaction. How do we deal with people uh, as believers without being, uh, you know, being foolish? <laughs> that's the big thing. Because when, you know, for me, one of the big questions I've got is how do I not put my foot in my mouth? How do I avoid doing more harm than good? How do I make sure that I'm standing on the truth but not hurting somebody? Because um, I'm not here to hurt people. That's, I have nothing, nothing in my heart is like, aha, these are the bad guys, let's hurt them. You know, like that is completely not what Jesus is about. But you can accidentally say something, you can accidentally present yourself in a way that does somebody some harm, and, and we don't want to do that. Uh, but we also don't want to not represent the gospel effectively as well. So, like, it can be a difficult thing to navigate. And so that's that's why I think, man, I'm not sure what to do with this. Uh, let's find somebody who does, <laughs> at least has more experience dealing with the issues. And, you know, there's no just simple answers, but there's at least articulate and well thought through, and things that have proven themselves over time, uh, ways to be able to deal with this. So, with that being said, I would like you to welcome to the stage, Drew Berryessa. Let's give him a good, good hope welcome. Thanks, Mike. First off, I just want to say thank you all for coming tonight. I know um, in my world, taking a night to go listen to some guy talk is like, not always my favorite thing to do. So I recognize that you all had many other places you could have been tonight and you chose to be here. And um, I really appreciate that. As someone who has given my life to help the church respond to this issue and these concerns, it's super honoring to me that you would choose to be here. So thank you for that. Um, I am excited to share tonight this message. And as Mike said, I'm going to present, but I also want to make sure that there's time at the end for engagement and question and answer, because this, this is not going to answer every question. 
clearly this is, you know, we have about an hour and a half-ish of time, and this is a completely complex, multidimensional, emotionally weighty, triggering, like, mess of a conversation. And so we're not going to answer everything tonight. But I'm going to try to give you some concepts and some tools that will help be guidelines for you to know how to engage, not just with those in the LGBTQ community, but for really anybody who has differing beliefs and uh, there's kind of a difficulty in figuring out that bridge to relate. Does that make sense? Okay, I can tell you're a little tentative tonight. I'm just going to lay down a ground rule for you. If you've not been in one of my talks before, buckle up, number one. Number two, I am a participatory type speaker. It helps us all stay awake. So if I ask a question, I go, okay, and you go, I'm going to be like, try that again. Because if I have to be here talking about sexuality and broken sexuality and sharing my story and delving into these waters, you at least have to respond with some sort of noise when I ask you a question. We good with that? That's better. Thank you. All right. The second thing is, I know this is a weighty conversation. This is emotionally charged. This is consequential. But I, I am a person who approaches things with humor. And I don't approach this with humor because I think that pain is funny or that where we're at is funny. I approach this with humor because a couple different reasons. Number one, I think laughter is the, cl- the, the shortest bridge between two, fe- two people. It breaks down offenses, it breaks down defenses, and it allows us to receive what's happening and makes us breathe a little bit. So when we laugh at something, it takes sort of the, the power of it to control us a little bit away. Does that make sense? So- there you go. You noticed my looks on my face. And um, the other thing is, I think that any time someone comes to talk about an issue that is so divisive, so consequential, so multifaceted, you should have some idea why the person who is talking has the authority to do so. Would you agree? How many of you have actually heard me before and know a little bit about my story? It's a good portion, and you came back. So brave. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Drew Berryessa. I am a pastor in Oregon, not Oregon, Oregon, that's how we pronounce it. And I am in Southern Oregon. I used to be in Portland, Oregon for a number of years, which is a very, very, very liberal city. Uh, In Portland, I was uh, attached to a ministry called the Portland Fellowship, which is a ministry that helps men and women who are struggling with their sexual orientation and sexual identity and find that their sexual orientation or gender identity is incongruent with their faith. And so they came to our ministry to figure out how do I live submitted to Jesus while dealing with this struggle. So I've had the privilege of walking alongside probably close to 800 men and women over the, over the last two decades, helping them surrender their sexuality to Jesus and watching profound transformation take place in the lives of many of those people. Part of that ministry also was ministering to parents and family members of those who had embraced a gay identity and ideology and helping them figure out, how do I relate to my loved one? How do I continue to keep bridges of relationship open even though we believe such vastly different things? And honestly, there's a lot of grief in the relationship? How do we maintain this? How do we not compromise the truth, but still engage with grace and love? And so that was such a huge privilege of mine to be able to walk with families in that circumstance. And so um, that's one perspective that I have, is being in vocational ministry to this issue for the last almost 25 years. 
It's a long time. I know I look very young. Or I don't. I don't know. I might be delusional. So I'm you know, like 25 years. You sure it wasn't 50? No, yeah, I'm sure. So that's one perspective. The second perspective is I found the Ministry of Portland Fellowship for my own struggle with same-sex attraction or, as some might call it, homosexuality. From the time I was about 12 years old, 12 to 13 years old, I began recognizing that I was not attracted to women, but I was attracted to men. This was a big problem for me as a believer in Jesus, saved since I was four years old, wanted to follow Jesus, wanted to serve Jesus, wanted to not offend Jesus with my life, and no matter how much I prayed and how much I tried and how much scripture I memorized, this struggle did not go away for me. And so I had to find some place with answers because the community I was living in didn't have any. And what the church was saying about homosexuality was in no way redemptive. And it wasn't until I finally, at age 21-ish, confessed my struggle to my youth pastor and his wife that I heard the first redemptive words spoken about homosexuality in my entire life, which is heartbreaking because the Bible is full of redemptive messages for people who struggle with sexual sin. But after confessing that struggle in my little small town in central Washington where I was growing up, I moved to Portland, Oregon, which I always say is a strange place to send someone to recover from homosexuality. <laughs> Felt like it might have been a little bit more safe in rural Washington, but whatever. That's where God brought me, to the ministry of Portland Fellowship, where the Lord began to uncover all these areas in my life that were broken, because I thought my problem was my homosexual attraction. As it turned out, that was a symptom of brokenness. And the reason why God did not answer the prayer of mine to take away that struggle is he, as the great physician, will not numb a symptom and leave the cause. So if you've ever had anything in your life, you've prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed that the Lord will remove a struggle, a, a, a temptation, or whatever it is, and the Lord leaves it, maybe you're praying the wrong prayer. Maybe the Lord wants to reveal to you why you're vulnerable to that and begin to heal those roots rather than just the symptom like he did for me. It was a rude awakening when I got to that ministry. I thought I had one problem. I began sitting under their teaching and realized I had 7,000 problems. Homosexuality was just one symptom of a lot of brokenness. And as I experienced the transformation of the Lord, as he discipled my heart and transformed my life, I didn't think that this would be something that I would recover from. I just wanted to learn how to have some self-control and obedience and clarity in my mind. But to my own surprise, the Lord transformed my life. And I stand before you today as the husband to a wonderful woman named Suzanne. We just celebrated 18 years of marriage. And I have three. Thank you. Yes, clap. You know what's remarkable about that is I have outlasted in my marriage absolutely every one of my relatives. Like in six generations of my family line, not one marriage has stayed intact longer than 12 years. Do you know how overwhelming it is to like overcome homosexuality and then realize six generations couldn't stay married? It's like, I will win this fight, you know? So it's, that's just extra gravy for you today. It's not, no other reason. Just sharing that bit of information. So not only was I the president, I was also a client, as the old Hair Club for Men commercial in the 80s used to say. I worked at that ministry, but not out of the goodness of my heart. I worked there because I had experienced such incredible transformation. And often when you have been met by the Lord in a place where the world and your culture is telling you is impossible and he does something incredible to transform you, you want to give back what you've given. You've been given. 
Amen? And so I got to not only minister there, I was ministered to there, but the last perspective I bring to the table, which is pertinent to this conversation today, is that absolutely everything that I teach and preach on this topic, I have to live out in relationship with people that I love and are very close to who are in the LGBTQ community. This is not just theory. This is real life living for me, that I've had to fight for every revelation and absolutely every stance that I take I've had to fight for it, and I find that it works, not only in my life, but in relationship to those who disagree with me. My identical twin brother identifies as gay, is married to a man, has adopted three children, and although hates, hates, hates my testimony, sees the fruit of what I do, in particular, helping churches and families respond to their loved ones, and although they do not agree with my conclusions about homosexuality being sin or that God has transformed my life, they have given me full permission to talk about them when I go speak because they see the redemptive things that God has done in our relationship and they think that that would be fruitful for other families. So they said, although we don't agree, please share anything you want because we see how this has helped. So I have to live it out. Do you think that those three things uniquely qualify me to talk about this topic to all of you today? That was not very enthusiastic. Okay. Thank you. Whoever that was with the loud yell, you'll be getting your payment later. Thank you. Tonight, I want to talk to you about, as we're talking about how do we engage your loved ones in the LGBTQ community, I'm going to bring some very practical and simple concepts and try to wrap our responses around in those things. But the first thing I want to share with you is a quote by... If, how many of you know who A.W. Tozer is? Okay, a few of you, yeah. A.W. Tozer was a theologian and a, a writer. He wrote several books. He had lots of commentary and a lot of um, books on the attributes of God. Actually, his two volumes of the attributes of God are so beautiful and deep and rich. But some, he wrote something that I found quite profound and applicable to this topic. So this is what he says. Christianity at any given time is strong or weak depending upon her concept of God. I insist upon this and have said it many times that the basic trouble with the church today is her unworthy conception of God. Okay, why is that important? Why is that important in this topic? Because the way that we approach this community and our loved ones is we have to approach relationally this topic with truth and love equally. And why I say that uh, the church in Christianity is strong or weak based on its concept of God is because there's this reality within our understanding of God that we can focus on an attribute of God that is true, but if we focus exclusively on that attribute to the neglect of his other attributes, we get a distorted image of who God is. Like, how many of you heard God is love? Okay, I see some nodding of heads and a few shooting hands. We understand that God is love. But is God only love? No. God is just. God is holy. God is righteous. He's, he's, you know, so many things. But in our culture, in this issue of truth and love, we see the churches and the manifestations of the body of Christ within culture erring often on one of two ends of a spectrum— Truth spectrum or love spectrum? Does this make sense? 
So let me talk about the truth spectrum for a second, because again, when we focus on one attribute or one perspective of God, we get a distorted image. So the truth end of the spectrum, which is important and we must not sacrifice it, can look really distorted when it's exclusively focused on. So this, in its distortion, starts looking like legalism. It starts looking like self-righteousness. And honestly, it starts also manifesting in hypocrisy. You know, Jesus said it. He said, before you try to take the speck out of your brother's eye, what do you have to do? (laughs) Right. Yes. Good answer. A plus. Yes. You have to take the log out of your own eye first. Why? So that, why? So that you can see clearly to remove the speck in your brother's eye. See, this is something that we seem to forget when we err and focus exclusively on truth, is we start looking at the things that we don't agree with or the, or the theological errors or the, the lack of discipleship around us, and we start seeing the things that are obvious to us, and we want to start correcting it, but instead we aren't also looking at ourselves to see, what authority do I have to speak on this? Do I have a forest sticking out of my face? And when it comes to sexuality in the church, oftentimes we have a forest sticking out of our face. And we're trying to correct the behavior of a world that many don't even believe in God. The Bible is not authoritative to many in the LGBTQ community, but we're standing in righteous judgment of them because they're not matching what we believe to be the standards. But let me ask you this. How many people in the church struggle with pornography? How many people in the church struggle with infidelity, lust, temptation? How many people have been remarried over and over again? Like, sexually, the church is pretty broken. Even if we were to take out pornography, lust, and divorce, let's talk about church sexual abuse scandals. Too many to name. So when we start engaging with the LGBTQ community and we look at them in the very clear, obvious ways that in their very identity and lifestyle, they are not submitting to the will of God in their sexuality we can get all rising up and be like, oh, well, that's wrong. And we're coming at it from a very hypocritical place. Let me tell you that the LGBTQ community is keenly aware of hypocrisy. Keenly aware of hypocrisy within the church. Many have been hurt. Many come from church experiences where sins were tolerated and even like marginalized or minimized or joked about sins that were just as consequential as theirs, but when they begin to struggle, the way that homosexuality or gender or any of these issues were talked about in church were so incredibly judgmental and so incredibly hurtful that it absolutely turned them off to anything that any pastor or Christian would have to say about truth or righteousness or healing or anything, because would you trust someone who's hypocritical, saying to you, here's how you should live, but their life is reflecting complete disassociation from those standards? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I remember being a young man in church, and I recognized my struggle pretty young, like 12, 13 years old, but even before that, I was a young kid in church when the AIDS crisis hit back in the early 80s. 
And I was, even though I was a grade schooler, I was aware of what homosexuality was. My uncle, who I love, really good guy, my entire life I knew he was a gay man. In fact, my uncle is, um, he's had HIV since the 70s, and he's still alive. He's one of the longest living HIV cases out there. I mean, he's lived a long time with this. And I remember listening to the pastor of our church talk about how AIDS was God's judgment against the gay community because those abominations are just, you know, this is what they deserve. Meanwhile, the people having the affair over there, the gossips over here, the self-righteous over there, you know, we want to fill in the blank continually, but this was my perspective as a kid. Homosexuality is the worst. You can point your finger and judge it and remain self-righteous, but inside the church, it didn't seem like there was the same standard to holiness. Anyone relate to that? So when we start focusing on the truth aspect, often hypocrisy and, and legalism starts taking the lead. And we start viewing people who are different than us or believe differently than us as opponents or enemies. It becomes us versus them. And we can see this right now in our culture, can't we? I mean, if you're at all up on the political movements associated with the LGBT um, human rights movements right now, like with the Equality Act and with therapy bans and with all these things that are going through law right now, you can see and you can begin to feel the attack on Christian values and beliefs. You know, in Canada right now, there was a, a law passed called C4, I believe, or C5, I can't remember the number. Maybe it's C5, dynamite. Um, but it essentially criminalizes testimony and ministry to those struggling with their gender identity and, and sexual orientation. My testimony is illegal in Canada. My book is illegal in Canada. I could, I could receive jail time for sharing my testimony in a church in Canada. And so it's easy when we start going to the truth end of the spectrum to get inflamed with frustration and anger and righteous indignation and want to fight against them who are coming against us with their, with their deception and with their falsehoods and all that. Does that make sense? Is this going to win anyone into the kingdom? I will tell you this right now. In 25 years of ministry in this field, I have never, never once met a person who left an LGBTQ identity relationship, any of that, because they lost an argument. Never. In fact, even when I was involved in a gay relationship, I didn't need to be convinced that what I was doing was wrong. I knew it was wrong. But I was so afraid of going back to loneliness and despair that I chose to do wrong because I was afraid of experiencing life without it. Does that make sense? When we err on the side of truth and we distort the image of God, God becomes the enemy to those who are outside of his will, who are sinning. That's not what Jesus was called. What was he called? The friend of sinners. When we err on the side of truth, we puff ourselves up in self-righteousness and we forget the things in our own lives that are not quite meeting the mark. We set ourselves up, us versus them, they're enemies, we're right, they're wrong, and it creates this dynamic where there's absolutely no place for meaningful dialogue, conversation, or relationship. It is not what God has called us to do. He has not called us to be 
pugnacious or rude or demeaning. He has not called us to, to anger. He has not called us to being right. He's called us to being incarnational and present. If we are on the side of love, let's go to the other end of the spectrum, love, distorted, looks very permissive. It looks very passive. Have you ever heard anyone say, I'm just going to love them into the kingdom of God? Raise your hand if you've ever heard that. Next time you hear someone say that, just, you know, slap. No, don't. That's not loving. Um, When we err on the side of love, we start becoming passive. We start removing words like repent from our vocabulary. In fact, I would challenge us in in a Christian culture in America today, there's been so many Christian books, Christian living books, self-help books, I challenge you to look for the word repentance in much of the Christian literature out there today. I challenge you to find a sermon on repentance in a lot of the mainline churches or the churches that have the most media presence out there. We've gotten away from that quite a bit because there's this pendulum swing where back, how many of you were alive and present in church in the 80s? Raise your hand. Yes, my homies, I see you. I'm glad we don't have the big hair we had back then because that was some dangerous Aquanet times. That was the Pentecostal bangs. Anyone remember those? You know what else was really rampant in the church was we were very legalistic. We were very performance-based. There was a season in the time in history in the church that we were right. We enjoyed the, the privilege and culture of being the moral right ones. Do we understand that? Like, most part we were viewed as Christians as the moral high ground people. There was a shift that began to have happen within church culture, and it started to go the direction mostly mainstreaming towards this loving response, which I'm all for us finding a balance. Amen? But what began to happen, like I said, is we started seeing this lack of the words like repentance in in sermons and literature and Christianity, and we started seeing a lot more seeker-sensitive models of church, and we started trying to just make people welcome, just get them in the doors, and we can get them saved. And, And although that is wonderful and great, what began going out the door as well is discipleship and holiness and righteousness, and holding each other accountable. And I don't mean the kind of accountability groups that a lot of people experience these days, which are actually just confessionals, not accountability. Guys in the room, how many of you have been in a men's accountability group before? Raise your hand. Oh, see, guys, you didn't want to raise your hand, did you? Okay, if I have to be up here, Talking about my former homosexuality, you have to raise your hand if you've been in a guy's group where you've been holding each other accountable. I saw one brave person. Raise your hand if you've been in a male accountability group. Okay, there's a few more brave guys. All right, I see you. Thank you. For many of us who have been involved in those groups, those groups actually just became reporting back of how we failed. Well, I fell this week again. Okay, you know, confess your sins. It's great support each other through, but there wasn't really any, stereotypically, there's not a lot of life being given. There's not a lot of discipleship or transformation happening because those things, in an ethic of love and safety, became places where there was no confrontation, rather just the opportunity to tell the truth about what happened in your week. And you moved on, and you kind of just did the same thing over and over again. 
For a lot of men, that's what it turned into. And for a lot of men in those groups who were seeking healing and transformation, the erosive effect each week of being told how everyone's failing started to erode your belief and faith that God could transform anything. And so it became about maintenance. Does that make sense? So one of the reasons why accountability groups went that direction is because there's overemphasis on love and inclusion, acceptance. And so what we see happening now is that it's gone even further to not only not call people to repentance, but now celebrate things that actually are repentable. Because when you tell someone who's steeped in that culture, God loves you, the response isn't, really? It's, well, of course he does. I'm amazing. Because we've gotten to this place where in the distortion of, of love, it's no longer powerful to say to someone that God loves them. Because we, don't, we feel entitled to it. It's like, let me ask you this question, rhetorical question, but I want a response. In the Old Testament, the penalty for homosexual behavior was death. Do we still require that today? Yes. The difference is who pays it. That right there just demonstrated an imbalance that we have in truth and love. Because the truth is, the wages of sin is death. Sin requires death. Jesus said he came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. And the meaning in that with sin is that all sin still requires death. The difference for the redeemed is Jesus has paid it for you. And for the unredeemed, they will pay with death. When we understand the two in tension, when we hold truth and love together, the power of who God is and the power of his love for us take on greater dimension. Because if I believe that I'm entitled to God's love, when someone tells me God loves you, I'm like, yeah, I know, I'm great. If I err on the other side where I believe that my sin and my humanity makes me unqualified for and not able to receive God's love, that's also a problem, isn't it? Because that's my only place of redemption, is to be marveling in the reality that this holy and righteous God loves me. And that I'm not worthy of it, but I receive it anyway. When we hold truth and love in that tension, it's uncomfortable. It's, it's powerful. It's transformative. It, it carries weight. And right now in church culture and in, in our engagement with the LGBTQ community, we're having to backtrack a little bit. Because what they've experienced with the church is either full inclusion or full rejection. That's not what God has called us to. So, let's get into the scriptures a little bit here and talk about where we go from here. Because are you on board with me? That truth and love together is our goal. Yes? Yes? Let me show you an example from Jesus how truth and love work in a winsome way. One of my favorite passages of scripture is from John 4. And it's the passage of scripture with Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. You guys know the story? How many of you have ever seen The Chosen? Y'all need to watch The Chosen. (laughs) Watch the last episode of the first season. It's the episode where Jesus engages with the woman at the well. 
It is a beautiful example of truth and love together. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the story, and well, I'd read it, but it's more fun if I just tell you the Drew paraphrase of the New Testament. It's colorful. So Jesus and his disciples are headed to Samaria. They stop. Jesus stops at a well. The other disciples go into the town to find food because they're hungry. And then a Samaritan woman comes in the middle of the day to get water from the well. This is unique because normally the women would go to the well in the early morning hours to avoid the heat of the noonday sun. But this woman was rejected by her, her peers because she was a sexually sinning woman. So she's going in the middle of the day to avoid the rejection, the judgment, the gossip, all the pain. Common human reality, we try to avoid pain. Right? So she's showing up there in the middle of the day. The hot sun and the weight of that in the, you know, the heat of the Middle East is preferable to the cool of the day with these other women. Just to give you the concept there. Jesus sits down and he says to her, will you draw me some water from the well? Give me a drink of water. She responds, why are you talking to me? Because she is a Samaritan woman, he's a Jewish man. All the cultural realities start hitting there. All the judgment, all the racism, all the animosity, all this cultural baggage is weighing on this moment. And Jesus is breaking a lot of cultural rules by asking a woman and a Samaritan woman for help. And so she rightly says, why are you talking to me? I'm a Samaritan woman. Don't you know who you're talking to? And he says, well, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me for a drink. And I would give you living water that would be a well, well up within you. And she looks at me like, you don't even have a bucket. Who are you? She's not getting it, right? How many of you have been talked to by the Lord and you're just not getting it sometimes? And that's to like hit you upside the head with something. And Jesus responds to her and says, you know, as, as they're talking, one of the things he says to her, you know, is describing this living water. She's like, you don't have a bucket. How are you going to do this? Are you better than our father Jacob who, you know, dug this well and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And, and he, you know, responds in this conversation, go get your husband. Let's have a conversation. And she says, I don't have a husband. You ever have one of those moments where someone asks you a question and you tell a half-truth to answer? No, just me? Okay. <laughs> now, I'm just going to, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to park here for a second. How many of you have told a half-truth trying to get out of a situation and not tell the full truth about your circumstance? Yes. Raise your hand higher. You ask me why I do this. Some people are, why do you keep attacking the audience and making them raise their hands? There's, a, there's actually a purpose behind it. And I'll let you into my secret here. If we can't admit our failures and our humanity in this room, how on earth is someone as broken and as baggaged going to come in here and feel like they belong in a group of people who can't even admit sometimes they tell a half-truth. We need to get a lot more humble and a lot more honest because there is a world dying and a lot of the time what they're not, why they're not coming into church is they don't want to be judged. So church, start admitting a little bit more about your humanity. Can we agree to that? See how humor allows me to say things that are hard and difficult to you? And you're like, yes, I believe you. 
because you made me laugh a minute ago. It's my superpower. Anyway, as we go on, Jesus is saying, go get your husband. I don't have a husband. And Jesus tells one of the harshest, most revealing truths so directly to this woman. You're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five. And the man you're currently with isn't your husband. What you say is true. Now, let me ask you this question. So the woman clearly responds to this, like, oh, crap, is her response internally. She says, clearly, you're a prophet, because he has now told her her own life story. And Jesus then proceeds to tell this woman in more direct language his identity as the Messiah. He hasn't spoken it that clearly to his own disciples, but he said it to a Samaritan sinful woman. Because the compassion of God and the love of God partnered with the truth, calling out her sin, but not leaving her there. See, when he was bringing up the concept of the water, you would ask me for water. He saw her hunger. He saw her thirst for love. He saw her thirst and her desire to feel value and to feel connection and to feel worth, like all these things that are important to us. And he also knew and saw that the way she was trying to meet that need was through these sexual relationships. Basically saying, what you're trying to do to to satiate your thirst will not work. You're drinking water that will not satisfy. If you knew who I was, you would ask me for the water that satisfies your soul. Do you see what he did? He called her sin out, but because of the respect and the dignity and the deference that he showed her, which was so countercultural that she stopped the conversation to ask him why he was doing it. See, Jesus demonstrated in a moment this beautiful marriage of truth and love, also married with this reality that when we say hard things to people, hard words require strong relationship. They require some sort of leverage or some sort of relational equity in order to say the hard thing. How many of you have wanted to say something hard to someone, but you recognize you've earned no right to say it? You have no relationship. You have no collateral. You know, this is one of the reasons why those placards and signs never work. What right do you have to tell me something about my life if you're not involved in it? Jesus showed her dignity and love and respect so much so that was so countercultural that that earned him the right to then address her heart. And what was her response? We know and we see when truth and love is married rightly, the response is so counterintuitive and so profoundly odd and different and beautiful that it just changes the dynamic. Here's a woman who's just been told all of her sins. And what does she do? She runs into the village to tell everyone to come meet the man who told her all her sins. Out of a brief survey, how many of you have been confronted in your sin before? Raise your hand like someone said, what you're doing is sinful. Yes, raise them higher so we can all see that you were all once sinners. (laughs) Were you then motivated to go and tell all of your friends that this person just called out your sin? No, but something about this this display 
This display of truth and love married together had such a profound impact on her. It transformed her life. I want to tell you a quick story about a time when I was in Portland in ministry in Portland at at Portland Fellowship. We had a live-in program, and basically people would come from around the country to live at this. Our our headquarters was a 100-year-old craftsman four-story home. It was amazingly beautiful and a pain in the butt because everything kept breaking on this 100-plus-year-old house. And we're a bunch of ex-homosexuals. We're not that crafty. (laughs) So... I mean, I learned what a wrench was while working there. I'm like, what do you do with this? You know, it fixes things. (laughs) Thank you for laughing at that. We we ran this live-in program, and a lot of people, a lot of my friends back then, they would say, like, isn't it risky to have a bunch of people who all struggle with same-sex attraction live in the same house? Why, yes, it is. But here's the thing homosexuality, transgenderism, all these issues, they're relational issues. They're relational wounds. They were created relationally. When we're wounded relationally, intellectual answers do not heal our wounds. Relationship does. If you're relationally wounded, it's in the context of relationship that you'll be healed. So although this, there's a risk when you get a bunch of these guys into a house living together that they will cross boundaries and sin. And the reward, when it goes right, is profound. So we, we, we run that risk. Well, one day in one of the programs, one of the young men, who has one of the saddest stories that I've ever heard in my life, a missionary kid, grew up in Pakistan, and profoundly sad, broken history. He had come to our live-in program. There was another guy, again, really profoundly broken history. And the two of them started feeling attracted to one another. And so... One was trying to resist it. The other one was a little bit more predatory. Went after the other one. They fell into this. And then we had to confront it and deal with it in the community. And my job was to discern, okay, who's, who is more predatory here and who was more a victim here? Because one of them has to move out for a little while. And so when we found out it was the kid from, you know, the missionary kid who had been more predatory, we had to bring them into the community. We had to let them confess their their failures and their sins. They were not like met with anger. It was just, it was hard. And then we knew we have to remove this kid from the house for a little while. And so my wife and I, who we always have an extra room in our home, we understand these are relational issues. These are relational brokenness. And if we just simply punish this kid and kick him out, he's not going to heal. So I told him, pack your bag, come with me. We got to our house. I called my wife ahead of time. She already had a you know, kettle going to get some nice tea, warm tea, because who doesn't want a warm drink when you're feeling sad? <laughs> right? Right? She's making the tea. We come in. We put his bags down. He sits down on the couch. The kid is practically dissociative and comatose. He's so ready to be rejected and yelled at and screamed at and told how worthless he is and how disappointed we are in him. He's ready. He's running the script in his head, everything he's ever been told about his failures. He feels horrible, and he's ready. He sits down on the couch. My wife walks up to him. Do you want a cozy blanket? (laughs) We like cozy blankets in our house and warm beverages. We like comfort. She's like, okay. So she gives him a fuzzy blanket. He's cuddled up in this blanket, looking around, kind of skittish. She hands him his tea. He's sitting there. I come in, I say, okay, Netflix time. 
pop on a funny show, sit down. We're just sitting watching television. He's wrapped in a blanket, staring at his mug. My wife and I are doing just fine. And after about 10 minutes, he goes, excuse me. <laughs> yes. And he looks at us and tears begin to form in his eyes. And he goes, how is this punishment? How many of you would have that reaction? You've been caught in sin. You know there's consequences. You're ready for it. But what you're experiencing instead is love. How many of you would be ready for the punishment? Where's the punishment? When he said that, my wife and I turned to look at him. And my wife goes, buddy, this isn't punishment. And he looked at us and tears just began rolling down his face. And he's like, I don't understand. And she goes, but this is love. We love you. And you're hurting. You need to be loved. Now, he had been told the truth. He was dealing with the consequences of his failure. He was not off the hook. He was called by his community and by us to surrender these things to Jesus and conform his life to the will of God. But he was also being called to do this in the context of love. Of love that recognizes that his vulnerabilities to these things are far bigger than just behavior. They're far deeper than just right or wrong. His actions represent desperate attempts to try to meet and anesthetize the pain that he's been living with his entire life. And these are relational wounds. Like I said before, they don't heal outside of relationship. And honestly, sometimes we deal with sin by putting people in like, I don't know, cosmic timeout. We cut people off from relationship. We cut them off from love. And this doesn't heal them. As we sat there and he just wept, he had no grid to understand that you can be met with love in failure. I don't know. He cried for about a good hour. And we just let him. And when he was done crying, he was like, I don't, what, what do I do? I'm like, you watch Netflix. <laughs> you drink your tea. You get into PJs and you go to bed. That's what you do. Then there's breakfast tomorrow, and his mercies are new every morning, and you receive the forgiveness that God has for you because you asked him for it, and you repented, and you move forward. And while you do that, you're going to stay here so that you're not tempted to re-engage this, and you're not under the weight of all the disappointment and frustration that you created in that house because that's not going to help you. So you stay here until you're restored and you can go back. And he was like, but where's the punishment? It was so profoundly good to watch what the Lord did in his life over that year. And the barriers and the brokenness that the Lord began to scale down off of his life. The ways that he was looking at God's heart and his character with those two attributes of truth and love married together. 
profound change began to happen in him and the lives of each of the guys because not only was he afraid of the punishment, so were each one of the other members of that community. They were wondering when the hammer was going to fall. Each one of them had a distorted view of God's heart and character. And we were able to demonstrate truth and love in tandem together, demonstrating how that can work. Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay. So, let's talk about this a little bit more. What about people who do not and will not like you? Do you know what I mean by that? Like, we know that in our world, if we actually say something like, Jesus' plan for sex is heterosexual marriage. Ooh, bigot! Hater! Nazi! I've been called these things, so I can say I've been called a lot of things because of what I, what I say to be true. Because, like I said, this is a deeply consequential, emotionally weighty, and triggering conversation for everybody. You know, that when we begin to talk about homosexuality from the church perspective into culture, we have a couple of barriers that we can't seem to get over. How many of you have used the phrase or know the phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin? Okay. Can I compel every single one of you to stop saying it? Especially when it comes to this community. Because one barrier that we have to understand is that we have a lack of understanding of how they understand their own identity and humanity. Because for the LGBTQ community, this is who they are. Of course, we understand that their feelings and behavior are informing their identity, right? I feel homosexual, I act homosexual, I am homosexual. If you're transgender, I do not feel like I'm the right gender in my body. I'm going to do something about that. That makes me this. So feelings, behavior, identity, right? Make sense? As believers, our identity is not established based on our feelings or behavior. Thank God. Our identity is established by God alone, who he says that we are. But when we as a church try to build a bridge by saying, I love you, just not what you do. How that translates to the gay community, the LGBTQ community, who find their identity in their behavior and their feelings, they don't hear, I don't like what you do, but I love you. They hear, I hate you. And so we have a hard time crossing that relational bridge because we're not using the same dictionary. Literally, they are hearing hatred for their identity when we are trying to communicate that we love them but not what we do. So inevitably, when we enter this conversation, we're going to have some relational snafus. We're going to have people that think the worst of us. What does the Word of God call us to do when people accuse our character? 1 Peter 2.12, Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then, even if they accuse you of wrongdoing, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God as he judges the world. What does this say? It says that even if a world accuses us for what we say or what we believe or what we do, still persist in your goodness towards them. Because inevitably, there's another scripture that says that they will be put to shame for their accusation based on your good behavior. Meaning that when the world looks at us and if they respond to what we believe, they accuse what we believe, they're like, we don't agree with that. But what they should never be able to do is to say, and we hate you because of how you treat us. Hate me all day long for what I believe, but you will not be able to accuse me based on how I treat you. Because every way that I treat you, I hope will reflect the heart of God for you. 
Does that make sense? So when the world sees our theology or they see our beliefs and they call us, you know, horrible and hate-filled and you reject me, then we prove that wrong not by our words, but our demonstrated love and pursuit relationally of these people. So now look very different ways. My, my identical twin brother, as you can imagine, in our world, in our lives, it might get a little tense. Can you imagine Thanksgiving dinner at our house? You have the ex-gay national speaker on this topic slash author by my book, small plug. Very outspoken person to this topic. And then you have a gay man in a gay relationship who, you know, believes that my testimony is false but loves me. There's some relational tension there. I mean, Thanksgiving dinner is like pass the gravy and repent. You know, it's really intense once in a while. But here's the thing about my relationship with my brother and his partner. And I, I shared it, I think, with you earlier. They've given me permission to talk about them. Why? Not because they believe in my conclusions. Not because they agree with my convictions. But because the way that I treat them. Because of the way that I engage with them. Because of the ways my wife and I show up in relationship towards them. Let me tie this back to scripture. You all familiar with the prodigal son, right? So I don't have to read it, correct? We're familiar enough? Okay. Correct? Okay, there we go. How many of you remember what, what moment the prodigal son came to his senses? When was it? Eating the pig, you know, at the pig trough, hoping that he could eat some of it, but he didn't have any. So when he comes to that, what you might call rock bottom moment, what is it that makes him go back home? Do you remember the story? The way his father treats people that work for him. The character of his father. And it's so revealing in this passage where he says, I'm not worthy to be called a son. You see what he's doing in that is he's ascribing an identity for himself based on his failures and his behavior. I'm no longer worthy in my identity as a son. Maybe my father will receive me as a servant because he treats his servants better than I'm treated. I'll go home to my father and maybe he'll receive me as a servant. The character of his father, the kindness of his father demonstrated in how he treated people was what gave the prodigal son the permission to go back. But even in that, he still had a distorted view of of the heart of his father because he thought that his actions and his failures and his selfishness and his sin disqualified him from sonship. Do you see it? the demonstrated character of his father. You know, my brother and his partner, they've been in relationship for 16 years. I believe someday my brother will repent because I know that my brother knows the truth because every single time we get a little close to that truth in conversation, he takes like a real quick left turn. You know, anyone ever hear of the, the, the concept of the age of, of, of accountability? Like how old is a child before they're responsible for the sins that they do in the eyes of the Lord? Anyone here about, like, know that concept? Okay, so we were talking about that one day, and my brother goes, well, I hope it's 58. And I look at him, his husband is sitting right there, I said, what are you planning to do at 58? 
Like, is that the expiration date on your marriage? Like, where you're going to say, well, I had a good run, bye. You know, it's like, statements like that tell me that he has in the back of his head this conviction that will not go away, that he is settling for something that is not God's will. Okay? And there's multiple other times in that. I also know that if he comes to that point of repentance, if the way that I've treated him over the years demonstrates legalism or self-righteousness or whatever it is, it's going to be that much harder for him to leave the pig pen and go home. Because who would go home if you reach that point and you go, well, if I go home, I'm going to be told, I told you so. Or if, if my relationship has always been based on trying to confront his sin and not actually just loving him and reflecting the truth and giving that responsibility back to him and the Lord, but loving him and telling the truth and consistently being there, demonstrating my character towards him. If he comes to a place of repentance, I want for him to be able to say, I can go home because I know the character of Drew. I know the character of Suzanne, my wife. I know they won't reject me and they won't say I told you so and I know they'll understand what I'm facing. I can go home. Does that make sense? First Peter 4, 12 and 19 through 19 says this, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through as if something strange were happening to you. Let's pause there. How many of you are shocked how many of you are on social media? Number one, raise your hand. God bless everyone who did not raise your hand. <laughs> Stay strong, sister. You know, I mean, like, but how many of us are shocked when we post something and people are offended? Tell the truth. Some of you want to piss some people off, right, with your posts? <laughs> Don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad. For these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to the world. If you are insulted because you bear the name of Christ, you will be blessed. For the glorious spirit of God rests upon you. If you suffer, however, it must not be for murder, stealing, making trouble, or prying into other people's affairs. I see you. But it is no shame to suffer for being a Christian. Praise God for the privilege of being called by his name, for the time has come for judgment, and it must begin with God's household first. And if judgment begins with us, what terrible fate awaits those who have never obeyed God's good news? And also, if the righteous are barely saved, what will happen to the godless sinners? So if you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right and trust your lives to the God who created you, for he will never fail you. This goes really well with Luke six twenty-seven through 36. I won't read the whole thing, but it's basically this. Love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. So many of us are so afraid to engage in this conversation with the LGBTQ community for a number of reasons. And Mike said it well. He said, you don't want to say the wrong thing. You don't want to put your foot in your mouth. But are we always afraid of not saying the right thing? Are there other people that we're willing to say the wrong thing to and go, whoopsie boom, sorry, I messed up? Of course there are. 
Why are we afraid of this community? It's not a rhetorical question. Why are we afraid of this community? <laughs> Anyone? Unfamiliar, sure. We, we get afraid of what we don't know. But why else? They have assumptions about us. Yeah, what was someone, someone else said something? Easily offended, right? Right? Don't want to cause pain. What else? Care about them and love them? Okay. Some of these are very, very good, like, altruistic responses. How many of you are just afraid of retaliation? How many of you are afraid of cancel culture? If you're a small business owner and you refuse or you state a belief and now you're being boycotted. There are some real concerns that people have that are underneath the nice, polite Christian concerns we often say. And I'll be honest with you, I don't like receiving death threats. I don't like receiving hate mail. I don't like being told that I'm horrible and awful and hate people and cause people to commit suicide. I'm told that all the time because of how I stand on the truth and I testify to what God has done in my life. And I'll be honest as well, for a lot of years, that prevented me from being more public with my testimony. But what I've experienced now is this reality that I get to be blessed by the fact that people are railing against my testimony because it's effective. Because it's offering hope to a world that is very antagonistic to this message, and yet people are still saved and still brought into redemption and still restored into life. But if I was afraid of that rejection or that judgment and did not step up and did not share my testimony and did not offer help to those, now I have to answer for that. Each of us in this room, if we're believers in Jesus, we've been given this gift of eternal life. Not just eternal life. We've been given this gift of God's presence with us to heal us to comfort us, to restore us, to save us, to lead us. We have this incredible gift. And we get so afraid of offending a community that we don't want to share it. Oftentimes, in all honesty, the tension of truth and love comes down to this one simple thing. It's uncomfortable. Right? We don't want to be uncomfortable. We don't want to bear someone else's judgment. We don't want the relational consequences that might come with taking a stand. We don't want to be known as that crazy person who believes those crazy, outdated things. Like We, we wrestle with this uncomfortability. Truth and love lived out incarnationally will always be uncomfortable because we are not allowed to get away with passive things. We are not allowed to, to, to give people you know, platitudes as answers. We are called to be present with people in their pain and in their brokenness, and that is uncomfortable. Listening to people's disclosures when they've fallen into sexual sin, it's uncomfortable. Bearing the judgment of other people because we're standing up for something that's righteous and true, it's uncomfortable. It's painful. So why should we do it? Because Jesus made himself very uncomfortable for you. Very, very uncomfortable on your behalf. And we are called to do likewise. This is a community of people that God loves. There are Saul's, Paul's, Saul, Paul. There are champions of the faith in this community that just haven't come to know Jesus yet. 
I shared a story earlier today with a, with a group of ministers that were here. And I shared with them about um, a couple years back, back on June 12th, 2016. Does it, do any of you know what happened June 12th? It was either 2016 or 2017. I can't remember the year right now. But did anyone remember what happened a couple years back on June 12th? The Pulse nightclub massacre. One of the biggest mass shootings in our country's history. A man, a gunman, went into a gay club in Orlando, Florida, targeting the gay community and murdered 50 people and injured so many more. As I shared this morning, I woke up that morning, and of course with my own testimony, this was real tender for me. June 12th is also my birthday, and I was preaching that Sunday morning. And so when I got up that Sunday morning to preach at my church, I just honestly said, you know what, I can't really give this message right yet because this happened this morning. And quite honestly, in my experience around, you know, historically, the Christian church has been really okay with the gay community going ahead and dying and going to hell. And here was an event that was so incredibly satanic and horrible. There are now 50 souls that may not enter into eternity with Jesus, depending on where they were at with Jesus in that moment, because we don't know everybody's hearts, but the assumption is they were in rebellion, maybe they weren't saved. These are 50 souls that do not get that opportunity to know Jesus. This should grieve the church. And so I said, let's pray, and let's pray for God to intervene, and let's pray for God to comfort those who've lost loved ones, and let's pray for his gospel to go forth. And we just spent a time in intercession for this group of people who none of us knew, but we knew what happened. Two years later, I'm standing in the California State Capitol in Sacramento, and a group of us, people with my testimony, are there to oppose a law that would essentially you know, create this, this um, business fraud law that any written, spoken, or offered services to those who were struggling with their sexual identity from a redemptive standpoint would be classified as business fraud in California. So my testimony, again, illegal in California. So we were opposing this law. As we were standing before the assembly men, the, the council people that were proposing this law, they were taking public testimony. We were there to oppose it. And the author of the bill was an LGBTQ guy. He was saying, we must pass this law on the anniversary of the Pulse nightclub shooting, the greatest attack on the gay community in modern history. We must protect this community, this vulnerable community. So pass this law. And then two men from our group got up and went to the microphone and said this. This is Angel Cologne and Luis Ruiz. We are two survivors of the Pulse nightclub shooting who gave our lives to Jesus, bleeding on the floor, shot and ready to die. Jesus redeemed us and he's transformed our lives. We have left our homosexual identity and life behind. Do not hijack my personal tragedy to pass your bad law. Boom goes the dynamite. You could have heard a pin drop in that, in that room as they stood and testified to the redemption of God in their life. And if I could dissect their story, as they surrendered their lives to Jesus, both of them had been pastor's kids who had gone astray were involved in the porn industry, were involved in prostitution, were drug addicted. Both of them separately, who had known each other but weren't close friends, had been praying that day going to the club, God, I don't know if you can still love me. I've gone so far. 
I have no idea if you're even there. Shot, bleeding, trampled, fearing for their lives, and that is where Jesus meets them. And I'd like to tell you that the church welcomed them in. It didn't. Did not want to receive the risk of these two. It took one of them a year and a half to find a church that would let him be there. Do you know what they're doing now? They're world evangelists. They travel the world sharing the gospel. They have Amazon movie specials about their life. There's Netflix specials, but they're everywhere. Quite honestly, it's a little annoying. I've been in this for 25 years. They just got shot, now they're everywhere. That sounded bad. Never mind. I'm very happy for them. Did that sound a little bit like the older brother in the prodigal son story? I've been faithful all this time, and you give them the party. Let's not be that. That's not good. No, they're, they're amazing, and it's so heartbreaking to me, and I'm so grateful that they're still following Jesus, but I'm going to tell you the truth. There was a big risk there for a little while as they were budding into their new relationship with Jesus out of this tragedy that the way the church responded to them was so unloving. There was risk. There was risk involved. There's risk involved when you want to engage with people who are coming out of this lifestyle or in this lifestyle because there's no guarantee what the outcome is going to be. So many people go back. You know, this kid that I told you about before who we brought into our house, I would love to tell you that he's doing good. He isn't. He was doing good when he was with us. But the time came where he had to go back home to a church that didn't want him. When Jesus gave us the parable of the seeds and he said, you know, sometimes seeds fall on the path. And the enemy comes like the ravens and just steals the seed. Sometimes the seed lands on the rocks and it sprouts up quickly, but the heat of the sun will scorch it out because it can't take root. There's nothing deep there. Sometimes it falls among the thorns and the cares and the concerns of this world come up and choke it out. When we see that, we see this reality playing out in people who leave this identity. If they are not rooted in a church, in a community that loves them and receives them and teaches them and holds them accountable and is there in the lows and in the highs, they're not going to make it. And can I tell you this, church, if we are really, really wanting to be like Christ, we have got to be in the long haul. And we've got to be willing to be uncomfortable. Because for some of you, for some of you guys in this room, if, there's, if there was a young man that came to this church out of the homosexual identity lifestyle, like many of the men that I've ministered to, and they need to sit across the table and confess what they have been struggling with, how many of you would be okay and would be willing to hear the sexual sins and the sexual defilement that someone might need to confess in a sin that is so unlike yours, how many of you would be willing to listen? Well, that wasn't a rhetorical question, but thank you. <laughs> but you get what I'm saying. I remember there was a guy that came to our ministry, 
And he had just recently confessed to a pastor his struggle, a pastor who knew about our ministry. They were in a parking lot. This man was terrified to tell the truth. When he finally told the truth, he's like, this is what I'm struggling with. The guy didn't know what to say. He didn't have answers, but he said, let me pray for you. And so he stood next to him, and he began praying for him, and he just moved his foot so that his foot was touching the other person's foot. Just a simple little sign that says, you're not a leper. I'm not afraid to be with you. And this grown man began to openly weep because he was convinced that if he told the truth of his struggle, he'd be rejected. And just the simple act of his foot next to his told him, I'm with you. That's not very complicated, is it? This is not complicated. I said something to the group of of ministers earlier today. If you have an LGBTQ-identified person in your life, then God has given you everything you need to minister and love them well. If they're in your life, God will prepare you. He's given you the gospel. Go. What is that old thing? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you? Golden rule? What would you want to have happen to you if you felt isolated and alone and hopeless and addicted and rejected by everyone? What would you want the response to be? Probably love. Probably assurance that you're not going to get thrown away. Probably assurance that what you've heard about the church rejecting people in this community isn't true. Because rejection of a person and calling out their sinful behavior are two different things, correct? It's a little heavy. It's a heavy topic, right? There's one more aspect of this that I want to talk about, and this might be a little bit, it might feel a little challenging. And um, I'm going to try to carve out some time for question and answer at the end, but I won't leave at 8 if you don't. So if you want to stay and ask questions later, you can. Everyone who's heard me talk knows I will answer questions till Jesus returns. So... But there's a concept that I I really want us to understand. And this is a concept that men, as soon as I say it, half of you are going to check out because you're going to feel like it doesn't apply to you. So brace yourselves. You're not off the hook. Some of the ladies in this room, when I say it, you're going to go into a flop sweat because you don't feel as qualified. And you'll know what I mean in a moment. I'm going to talk to you about biblical hospitality. And you're like, what? The men are like, that's woman's work. Some of the women are like, I'm not Joanna Gaines or Martha Stewart. I've got more dust bunnies than anything in my home. I'm horrible. It's like, number one, hospitality is not about decorating. It's not about home decor. It's not about, you know, Martha Stewart living. Hospitality is about welcome and inclusion. Hospitality is the embodiment of the verse in Scripture from James 1 that says, pure and undefiled religion is this, to see the orphans and the widows in their distress, to take care of them and remain unstained by the world. Hospitality looks like sharing life and resource and need and fellowship. Hospitality was such a high value in biblical times. In fact, I was sharing this with Pastor Mike earlier, when we recount the sins of Sodom, often in the scriptures, yes, we all know the stereotypical story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and it's so often quoted that homosexual rape was their sin. But multiple times in other places in the scripture, when it brings up Sodom and Gomorrah, it doesn't mention that. Do you know what the most consistent sin mentioned in the scripture for Sodom and Gomorrah is? Inhospitality. Biblical hospitality 
is powerful and it's life-giving, and there are so many scriptural references and commandments to do this. In the Old Testament, I won't go through all of them, but there's a ton of them. Hospitality took several forms like um, being gracious to travelers, opening your home, sharing food, lodging, offering protection, permitting the alienated person to harvest the corners of your field, the gleaning of the, of the sides of the edges of your field. In fact, they left a row, a portion of fields unharvested for the alien and the stranger as a form of hospitality to help them on their way. It also looked like clothing the naked. It looked like tithing food for the needy, including the alien in religious celebrations. Like we see some of the indictments that Jesus gives the church in that really scary thing of like, whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done it unto me statement where people think, well, you know, I didn't see you at the door, Lord. It was like, if you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. If you didn't do it for the least of these, you didn't do it for me. That passage is often rooted in this concept of hospitality. And hospitality, it's relational in nature, and it creates this dynamic where you, as a believer in your home, recognize that one of the most powerful places of ministry you have is your home. You know, I grew up in a very broken family, and when I started going to church, like, consistently at 14 years old, none of my family went with me other than my twin brother. My parents were MIA, Like, literally, I moved out when I was 14 years old. My family was the church. The parents and the older people that volunteered at the youth group, these were my de facto parents. They didn't know it, but they were mine. And I remember one day, in my own brokenness, sitting in a Christmas Eve service by myself, because I was there for Christmas Eve service. Love Christmas Eve services. But in this particular one, the pastor, in a moment, shared just like what he thought was a great idea. Everyone go to your families and, and to have a time of family prayer because in this church, all the youth sat together. And so he was basically saying, youth, go back to your parents. We're going to have a time of family prayer for Christmas. And I sat there in the sanctuary while all my friends moved away and I sat alone and I felt exposed for the orphan that I was. And how many of you have ever been picked last in gym class? Raise your hand. Be honest, I see some of your figures. Like, I know. You're not coordinated. No, just... How many of you have had that feeling of exposure, like you just wish you could disappear? Just be gone. I sat there for I don't know how long, and I thought, don't cry. Don't show how broken you are right now. And I thought, if I just get up and get out of the sanctuary, if I can get out of the sanctuary without being seen, and without making a fuss, I'll be good. So I got up, and I quickly made my way to the doors. And when I got to the doors, it was another maybe 30 yards, huge foyer, to the doors to the parking lot. And I thought, if I can run and get to those doors before I either throw up or sob so that no one can know how rejected I am and how alone I am, because this was an accusation against me, So I went into full sprint. I didn't reach the door. A hand grabbed the back of my shirt. And I almost did, you know, one of those, you know, things. And I turned to see this woman, Kathy Stevenson. She was a 52-year-old mom who had been volunteering in the youth group for years. I don't know how she caught me at the door. She's 5'1". She was not in the foyer when I got out there. 
and I full sprinted to the door. So supernaturally, somehow her arm stretched, or she leapt, or she had that, you know, Elijah anointing of, you know, you know, running to wherever. But she caught me, and I turned around, and I could not, my, my face was, you know, ugly cry is, like, you know, I was falling apart. And she looked me dead in the eyes, and she said, where are you going? And I said, just through my sobs, I don't have a family. And she said, with tears forming in her eyes, yes, you do. And she turned me around, and she walked me right back into the sanctuary to where her husband, Jean, and her son and her daughter, Sean and Julie, who were friends of mine, were sitting, and five other orphaned people and they wrapped their arms around me, and we had a time of family prayer. Do you have any idea how much healing just the simple act of bringing people into your family can be? Hospitality, biblically, it, it, it demands that we make ourselves available for those that are hurting and alone and pretty much hopeless without a community to surround them. I've said it so many times today that, that this, these are relational wounds and they only heal in the context of relationship. And those in the LGBTQ community are surrounded by a community that continually confirms and reinforces their wounds. And this is their community. And there's a, I've shared this proverb several times already this week with the youth and then with the pastors earlier, but Proverbs 27.7 is a profound reality. It says, to him who is well-fed, honey is not desirable, but to him who is starving, the bitter thing will seem to taste sweet. In modern vernacular, Drew translation of the Bible, I would say bad love is better than no love at all. The LGBTQ community are starved for love. They're starved for inclusion. They're starved for relationship. And the type of inclusion and affirmation and relationship that the gay community gives is just reinforcing the wounds. But bad love is better than no love at all. And I cannot tell you how many times I've heard it said and experienced it myself. You guys, it is easier to find sex in the gay community than it is a hug in church. That needs to stand as a point of conviction for us. That whatever we're afraid of, whatever consequence we feel might happen if we engage in this community, get over it. Because whatever judgment or consequence we reap in the process of trying to love people into the kingdom of God will always be worth it. That we will count ourselves as blessed in sharing in the sufferings of Jesus, who was also ridiculed for his mission, also rejected, also judged, also called names, and eventually crucified for his mission here on earth. But we get to share very lightly in those sufferings when people don't like us very much. As uncomfortable as that is, and I'm not saying it isn't, we need to get over it. As uncomfortable as it is to invite people into our homes who we don't know and clearly they're broken, I can tell you this, I can tell you a lot of people probably did not want Drew Berryessa in their living room all the time. I was a lot. I'm a lot now, and I'm pretty healed, you know? 
Imagine me very needy, codependent, and broken. Think I'm dramatic now. Lord, I was dramatic. Now I'm just dramatic. It's a word. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, I would not be married. I would not be maybe even alive. I, I attempted suicide a couple times in my life because I was so hopeless. I don't know that I would be alive without the hospitality of the body of Christ. I wouldn't be married. I wouldn't be healthy. I certainly wouldn't be here. And so much of the redemption that God has worked in my life have been through the hands and feet of very normal people who didn't know a lick about homosexuality but could see that I was hurting and wanted to try to minister to my needs. Does that make sense? We try to make this a lot more complicated than it is. Are you afraid you won't have all the right answers? Yes. Here's the secret. You won't have all the right answers. You're afraid that people might reject you or judge you because of your stance theologically. Yes, they will. Maybe you're afraid that your attempts at helping people will fail and people will go back into the life that they were in before. It's going to happen. Maybe you're afraid that you're going to lose favor with people. You will. So what? There are eternal souls in that community that we have no idea the destiny God has laid out for them if they will simply follow him. Nobody could have guessed that Angel Cologne and Luis Ruiz would be evangelists to the nations when they were headed to the club June 12th. No idea. I'm sure nobody looked at Drew Berriessa and thought, you know who's going to go teach the church? <laughs> that guy. You know, no. It's in the context of loving, hospitable relationship that not only calls us to truth, but loves us in our weakness and our vulnerability, that Christ works powerfully to redeem those in this broken, broken, broken community. Because these are relational wounds. And truth and love together, when we incarnate those and engage with a broken world, you guys, it can be so transformative and so powerfully good. And let me say this one thing, this one last thing, and then I'll open it to the late people who want to stick around and ask a few questions. I lost my train of thought. It was going to be profound, though. <laughs> I'm sure I said it in my book. You should buy it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I got all soft voiced and I was ready like I was ready for the point and it's gone but I found a new one so we'll just pretend that this is what it is <laughs> hospitality puts our lives and our hearts on display we see our selfish ambition our pride our insecurities we see it all when we let people in our imperfections are visible to people. Our places where we might have some hypocrisy are, are available to people. Our, our, you know, our, our most vulnerable to moments and times. I can tell you all about how good my marriage is, but then come and live with me for a little while and see how like my wife goes, stop farting. And I'm like, I can't. <laughs> Better out than in. You know, it's, <laughs> it's terrible. I had no redeeming quality to that at all. 
But let me say this. Hospitality is the antidote to one of the greatest maladies facing the church today, and that is disconnection and chronic loneliness. It is a crying shame that anybody is lonely when they're part of the body of Christ. We can fix that. If we open our homes and open our lives, there's a, there's a group of homes called Larch Communities. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of it, but it was established years ago by a guy named Jean, Jean Venier. He was the founder of the Arch Communities. It's a home where people with developmental disabilities live in community with those who don't, and those who don't have developmental disabilities help those who do with their daily life and task. The Christian uh, Catholic writer, former, um, now passed on, Henry Nowen, if any of you have ever heard of him. He was a profound writer. He wrote a book called The Wounded Healer. He was a Catholic priest and theologian who struggled profoundly with his own sexual orientation and insecurity and fear. And in all of his career of being a theology professor in Ivy League universities, he never found so much gratification as he did when he humbled himself and chose to live in large community and became the helper to a developmentally disabled man named Adam who couldn't even speak. It's the most profound experience of his life to demonstrate love and service to someone like this. That's large communities. But Jean Venier wrote this profound statement, and I'm going to leave us with this and then open up for question and answers. He says, welcome is one of the signs that a community is alive. To invite others to live with us is a sign that we aren't afraid and that we have a treasure of truth and peace to share. A community which refuses to welcome, whether through fear, weariness, insecurity, or a desire to cling to comfort, or just because it is fed up with visitors, is dying spiritually. Can we as the body of Christ be known for our welcome? Our welcome is not permission to stay in sin. Our welcome does not accommodate sin. Our welcome says, we are all redeemed sinners. Every sinner is welcome to come and hear about this God who redeems us. If we are not a welcoming community that can welcome and affirm the value of people, not what they do, but the value of the person, and point them towards the God who loves and redeems them, then what good are we? This is just a country club with 10% of your income dues. You'd think you'd get an indoor pool for that. (laughs) Let's actually be the church. Let's step out of our comfort. Let's be willing to be judged and ridiculed and rejected for the sake of men and women who are dying for the gospel. Amen?